Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. She was just a beautiful woman, if she so desired, or beautiful and vivacious, together or separately, having acquired these arts from the lessons her mother had procured for her from actors, famous courtesans, preachers and lawyers. The diabolical woman had gone to all the professions that call for subtle and varied expressions for private instruction in order to make her daughter really a morsel fit for a king. She could weep like an actress. She could be, at will, superb, imperious, calm, roguish, a tease, judicious, curious, attentive, by altering the expression of her eyes, her lips, her fine brow. In fact, without moving her body, her mischievous face made of her a veritable Proteus. The Private Life of Louis XV by Moufle d'Angerville, 1781 Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 5.11, Madame de Pompadour, The Little Queen. Last time, Hortense Mancini arrives in England and makes an immediate splash, seducing the king and his daughter and setting up a legendary salon in London. There she lived a life of libertine excess until her debts, the glorious revolution, and the pettiness of her husband eventually caught up with her. Today, we move across the channel and a couple of decades forward in time to tell the story of, quite possibly, history's most famous mistress. If you were to ask random strangers in the street to name figures from Ancien Régime France, the first thing they would likely tell you to do is go away. The majority would then ask what the Ancien Régime was, but even the rest even that small remnant that's still around you would struggle to tell you a single thing about any of the kings that lived in that time. But they will probably know the names of the two most famous women of the age. One of them, Marie Antoinette, is a story for another time. 
but the other is Jeanne-Antoinette Poisson, better known to history as Madame de Pompadour. The Sun King, Louis XIV, ruled France for over 70 years, and is infamous for many things. Religious persecution, constant warfare, spectacular excess, megalomania. But for us, his most important aspect was his insatiable sexual appetite. French kings had always had mistresses, but it was under Louis XIV that the position of maîtresse en titre, or official mistress, became fully codified. He moved his official mistresses into their own apartment in Versailles, the vast opulent palace just outside of Paris, where all senior French nobility were forced to reside. The children he had with these women were acknowledged, and while they weren't legitimised, they were still given prominent positions and marriages. Official mistresses were placed in the Queen's service, ate with the royal family, and had access to all the most powerful people in the land. If they wished, they could exert as much power as any male courtier. Jeanne-Antoinette Poisson, known as Renette to her family, was far from the first of her kind, but thanks to her beauty, intelligence and soft power skills, she would define it. Depending on the time and place, she is ostracised or romanticised, revered or reviled. In this way, she is very much like all the women we have looked at in this series. But few mistresses in history have held so much influence for so long a time at such a colourful period. She lorded over Versailles, immersed herself in the internecine squabbling of court politics, and built an artistic legacy that defined an era. I can't wait to get going. But first, I would like to thank all of my amazing Patreon supporters that keep the show going. If you too would like to support this show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast, where you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, where we post bonus content from the episode, like pictures and maps. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Paris, 1730. A mother takes her daughter to see Madame Le Bon. This girl was beloved by her parents and they had big expectations for her future. This was why she had been taken to a fortune teller. What awaited this young girl? Would she marry a duke? Live in a great house? Would she be rich? Such things are catnip for fortune tellers like Madame Le Bon. She opened her inner eye and prophesied that Jeanne-Antoinette Poisson would grow up to become the king's mistress. Her future was mapped out for her from that day. Her destination was set. The rest of her upbringing, everything she did, was done with that single goal in mind. They even changed her name. 
From that day on, her family called her Renette, which translates from French to mean the little queen. She was born in Paris on the 29th of December 1721, as the eldest of two children. The French capital was unrecognisable in the 18th century, from the modern romantic city of lights that we know today. That was a creation of the 19th century. Like most of the larger cities of early modern Europe, Paris back then was really an overgrown town, with narrow, noisy, dirty, dangerous streets that opened out in the outskirts to larger manor houses owned by wealthier inhabitants. Renette's home was in the centre of the city, on the Rue de Clary, and her parents were what we might think of today as the middling sort. François Poisson had achieved great success, and the family was on the up. But he was then made the scapegoat in a black market scandal when Renette was only four years old, which resulted in a food shortage in the capital. He was forced to flee over the Rhine to escape arrest, leaving his wife, Madeleine, behind with the children to fend for herself. Madeleine was beautiful and resourceful. Before getting married, she was what was known as a femme galante, a woman who relied on her good looks and charm to succeed. Not a prostitute, but not quite a courtesan either, somewhere in between. In her biography of Renette, Margaret Crosland writes that, quote, the list of her recorded lovers is long and picturesque. Madeline knew that to keep a roof over the heads of her and her young children, she needed a protector and she found it in the rather exuberantly named Charles-François-Paul Le Monde de Tournehem. His job was somewhat less glamorous than his name suggested. He was a tax farmer, but that was a role that gave him wealth and position. We're not sure why he took in Madame Poisson. They had been old friends, perhaps former lovers. It may have been the milk of human kindness, but it could have been something more transactional. The books that I've read on the subject are divided as to whether their relationship was a sexual one, but it certainly seems likely to me. Indeed, later gossips would whisper that Monsieur Tornehem was actually Renette's father, though there is no real evidence to suggest this. However, Renette would not see much of her new home, as she was shipped off to a convent school in Poissy, where her aunt was a nun. This was not an education in society. This was about learning how to be a dutiful wife and mother. She learned dressmaking and embroidery, but was also taught arithmetic and writing, all skills considered to be essential for a woman's role at the time. When she returned from the convent, her mother gave her a very different education, one in the social world in which she inhabited. Madeline had grown up the daughter of a butcher, using nothing but her wits and natural attributes to succeed. She was not ashamed of what she had done or where she had come from, but she wanted more for Renette. She wanted to find a good marriage for her, one that would set her up for life. But first, she needed two things. A healthy dowry and the social graces required to succeed in high society. The first was taken care of. Tornahem knew a good investment when he saw one. Even as a teenager, Renette was already growing into a woman every bit as beautiful and accomplished as her mother, and without the social stigma of how Madeleine had come about her position. 
Renette was going to go to the top, and Tornahem wanted the early mover advantage. Indeed, he invested in her early, hiring a variety of tutors, specialising in everything from singing and dancing to acting and etiquette. Everything she would need in the world of the Paris Salon, which she entered for the first time when she was 17. In the last episode, we talked a lot about the Salon. These were female organised groupings of writers and thinkers who would speak about their work and debate. We know that she frequented the Salon of Madame de Tansin, who boasted as guests the lights of the jurist and thinker Montesquieu and the playwright Marivaux. For a woman to succeed in 18th century French society, she had to make herself at home and rule the roost in salon life. Renette worked hard at her craft, encouraged by her mother, and was soon ready to take the next step. The man chosen to be her husband was Tournehem's nephew, Charles-Guillaume Le Tourmont d'Etoile. He was his uncle's heir and had followed him into the family business. He was nearly five years her senior and was a decent enough man. Not especially attractive, but she wasn't marrying a face. He was a lord of his own estate, a minor one to be sure, but enough to give him social position and wealth to support his ambitious new wife. Standing with his new wife at the church of saint Eustache on the 9th of March 1741, Charles-Guillaume, I'm sure, would not have been able to believe his luck. The woman who had entered, Jeanne-Antoinette Poisson, who was about to become Madame d'Etoile, had every attribute prized in a woman at the time. The fairest skin, golden hair, and eyes that seemed to change colour depending on the light. She was described by one of her brother's friends thusly. Quote, Any man alive would have had her for his mistress if he could. Tall, though not too tall. Beautiful figure, Round face with regular features, wonderful complexion, hands and arms, eyes not too big, but the brightest, wittiest, and most sparkling thing I ever saw. Everything about her was rounded, including all her gestures. She absolutely extinguished all of the other women at court. The couple didn't waste any time, with Renette immediately becoming pregnant and giving birth exactly nine months after their wedding ceremony though sadly the boy died less than a year after she was born. She would not give birth again for another four years, though there likely would have been miscarriages or stillbirths in between, the history does not record. The only child that survived infancy was a daughter, Alexandrine Jeanne. The young couple split their time between Tournehem's home on the Rue Croix des Petits Champs, where her mother and newly returned father also resided, and the Chateau d'Etoile in the Sénard Forest, just south of the city. Her life was hectic, with a social calendar that was packed to the gunnels. She attended all the same salons and soirees as before, but now as a woman married to a prominent man. Her position in them was now elevated, and she was now finding hostesses bidding for her presence at their events. And, of course, she hosted her own. She had a theatre built at her home in Paris, where she, naturally, was the star attraction. This was not mere vanity. She was recognised as one of the finest amateur actresses in the city, and one of the best singers. And she surrounded herself with all of the most fashionable thinkers, with the likes of Montesquieu and Voltaire all frequenting her salon. She was making a name for herself. She was becoming noticed, 
the talk of the town, and talk of her soon travelled out of the city and to the palace of Versailles. Louis XV was a king that had a lot to live up to. Historians have argued for centuries about the legacy of his predecessor, Louis XIV. But he reigned for over 70 years and left an indelible mark on France that would last until the Revolution. He had entrenched absolutism, centralising all power in his own hands. Though he wasn't exactly a despot in the 20th century mould. Power was still exercised through ministers and royal councils, but these all reported to the king and acted in his name, with little recourse to any other body. The most famous part of his legacy was the Palace of Versailles, a vast complex just outside of Paris. It was the exemplar of royal power, the ultimate in Baroque. Every crowned head of Europe sought to recreate their own version of Versailles, though none of them could come close to the original. Its rooms were adorned with art that glorified France, and, most particularly, Louis himself. But they were also crammed with people. Louis made it mandatory for all the great nobles of France to be in Versailles when he wasn't on campaign. Like all egomaniacs, he was a deeply paranoid man, and thought that the best way to control his kingdom was to centralise all power at the apex of society and then house them all together in one place. His courtiers became his captives, and his attention became their only currency. This meant they needed to spend ever-increasing sums on clothes, jewels and gifts to impress the king, and fortunes were lost at the gambling tables. Indeed, the only people that really profited from Versailles were the moneylenders, who set up shop within easy reach of the desperate nobility. Royal ministries were now within easy walking distance of his bedchamber, the whole of French government ensconced in the ultimate pleasure bunker. The future Louis XV was not supposed to inherit the throne. His predecessor had reigned so long that he had outlived not only his eldest son, but also his grandson. Both had been carried off in a measles epidemic in the winter of 1711-12 that carried off a great number of the upper French nobility, along with his eldest son. By the way, if you're wondering why I'm not naming any of these people, it's because they are all called Louis. He had two brothers, all called Louis. His father was called Louis, and his, and his, and his, all the way back to Henry IV, who had died in 1610. Aged just two, our Louis had lost his elder brother, mother, father and grandfather all in the space of a few months. Indeed, he had only survived because he had been kept well out of the reach of doctors by his governess, the Duchess of Ventadour, who had become a surrogate mother to the new Dauphin. When he inherited the throne, aged just five, he was surrounded by powerful uncles and great-uncles including the products of the vast brood of Louis's illegitimate children. Power was held by Louis-Auguste, the Duke of Maine, who was placed in charge of the king's education, and Philippe, the Duke of Orléans, who was named regent. Now, we don't need to get into the politics of the kingdom during the regency too deeply, 
But suffice it to say that Orléans was not a popular man. He was the heir presumptive, and it was rumoured that he had been behind the deaths of Louis XIV's other heirs. Now, I recently saw the musical version of Aladdin. It's not very good, by the way. And perhaps because of this, I was reminded a lot of Jafar when I first read about him. But actually, this seems a little unfair, as it appears he treated the boy king well, and did his best to govern the kingdom fairly, and prepare his nephew to take the throne. He would bring the boy into council meetings, the youngster clutching his pet cat, which the nobles around the table called his colleague. But he didn't say anything, he was overawed by all the great men in the room. And this was an inferiority complex he would never really grow out of. The main issue with Orléans was that he didn't really do anything. He was a placeholder, but he was that for about a decade. And that's a long time for a kingdom to run on autopilot. The constitutional changes of Louis XIV, already a fairly backward system, became entrenched and festered. It's a gross oversimplification, but arguably the ticking time bomb of 1789 started here. Orléans died shortly after Louis came of age, but instead of taking the bull by the horns and running the kingdom by himself, he instead took the suggestion of another one of his older relatives, the Duke of Bourbon, to let him be in charge. One of the few real decisive decisions that Orléans had taken was to arrange the king's marriage. The girl chosen was the Spanish infanta Ana Maria Victoria, also known as Marianita, his first cousin. But she was ten years his junior, meaning that the king would have to wait impatiently for a long time before the marriage could be consummated. All this time, the young princess was living at Versailles, following him around like a shadow, like a irritating, precocious little sister. Louis found her profoundly annoying, as did the regent, who was impatient to get the king officially married as soon as possible. So, Marianita, after growing up expecting to become the Queen of France, and after being packed off Versailles for many of her childhood years, was unceremoniously dumped and sent back over the Pyrenees. Now, the list of suitable replacements for her was actually fairly short. She had to be Catholic, so that ruled out British and a lot of German options. She couldn't be French, for fear of elevating one faction at court above the other, you didn't want an Elizabeth Woodville situation to develop. So in the end, the chosen bride was an exiled Polish princess, Marie Lezinska, whom Nancy Mitford, in her biography of Renette, describes as, quote, a princess who knew no cosmetics but water and snow, and who spent her time embroidering altar cloths, being endowed with neither worldly goods, nor powerful family connections, nor beauty, not even youth. Damn, Nancy, tell us what you really think. But she was of royal stock, and crucially, she was of age. And that was the most important thing to the randy teenage king of France. It was reported that they had sex seven times on the wedding night alone, and given the lack of privacy afforded on such an occasion, this report had some validity. More proof of the king's virility is the queen's near-constant state of pregnancy over the next few years. In a ten-year span between 1727 and 1736, they had ten children, and this took a toll on the queen. 
She complained of being, quote, forever bedded, forever pregnant, forever in childbirth. Understandably, she started to avoid sleeping with her husband, whose demands for sex did not abate as he approached his 30s. And now that they weren't sleeping with each other, it became clear as clear can be that the two had absolutely nothing in common. Louis was a party boy. Marie liked to play card games with her friends. He found her boring. She liked boring. And this left the door wide open for other women to make their play for power. Now, the king had been far from monogamous in his first decade of marriage, but essentially his extramarital sexual exploits had been like sugar rushes, short-term bursts of pleasure, but ultimately fleeting. His first significant mistress, perhaps unsurprisingly, was one of his wife's ladies-in-waiting. Louise Julie de Mailly was not regarded as a particular beauty, but she was fun, vivacious, and flirtatious, not adjectives anyone would apply to the Queen. In a wonderful coincidence, she was Hortense Mancini's granddaughter through her son, Paul Jules. Clearly, sleeping with kings ran in the family. At first, their relationship was a secret, but after a few years they became less and less subtle, until, by the late 1730s, she was sitting by his side at table. He set her up with an endowment of around 20,000 livres, which was enough to live comfortably, if not lavishly, and was given private quarters, connected to the king's bedroom via a private staircase, known as the Staircase of the Dogs. Being a classy guy, when he tired of Mai, he dumped her in favour of her younger sister. Pauline Felicité was far less placid than her elder sister, and interjected frequently in politics, but she tragically died following the birth of their first child together. And you'll never guess it, but her place was taken by two more Mai sisters. First, Diane Adelaide, and then the recently widowed Marianne. The latter was the most significant and formidable of the Mai brood. Unlike her sisters, who were often criticised for their lack of looks, she was well regarded as a beauty and had the political brain to match. Unlike her sisters, she did not throw herself at the king. Instead, she played hard to get. The Marquis d'Argenson, a contemporary, wrote in his memoirs that, quote, The king went to see her, disguised in an overcoat and square wig. And then and there, it was a question of the lady's bargain and conditions. Well advised, she desired to be a declared mistress, demanded a fine apartment worthy of her position, and not be required, like her sister, to sup and sleep in small and secret apartments. That the king should openly hold his court in her rooms, and sup there with the same publicity. That when she wanted money, she was to send her notes and attain it at the royal treasury. By the end of the year, she should have her letters patent as Duchess verified in Parliament, and that if she became pregnant, it should be so publicly and without concealment, and that her children should be legitimised. The most essential condition was that poor Madame de Mailly should be dismissed and exiled to four leagues from the court. This is brutal behaviour from Marianne to her sister, who was a political operator with savvy and ambition that far outstripped the kings. She tried to mould him into a man in her own image, but he was far too uninterested in state affairs to take much notice of her attempted mentorship. 
She did, though, manage to persuade him to wage war on the British and Austrians during the War of Austrian Succession. She was allied with the Duke of Richelieu, another man dominated by his mistress, and together they engineered to have him go to the front lines in the Low Countries. She joined him there, but during the campaign, he fell gravely ill. Perhaps in an attempt to save his immortal soul, he repented on what he believed was his deathbed, sending Marianne away and calling for his wife and children to be by his side. Marianne would herself die not long after. This meant that, at the start of 1745, Louis XV had no official mistress, and his supply of Maï sisters had finally been exhausted. According to one account, quote, All the fair women of Paris took the field and availed themselves of every device of art and nature to attract the opposite sex. Everyone was busy. Dressmakers, hairdressers, trimmings makers worked day and night. They bathed and perfumed themselves in readiness for an eventuality. Before they heard of the favourite's death, the women of Paris enjoyed good health. Now they found themselves afflicted with the most terrible headaches and most of them went to Versailles for a change of air. The chief thing was to be seen by the king and to speak with him. And one of these women looking to replace Marianne de Mailly was, of course, Renette. When we last saw her, she was making a name for herself in polite Parisian society, belying her rather humble origins to become a fixture in the salon scene. But she wanted more and had not forgotten the fortune-teller's prophecy that she would become the king's mistress. Now was the time to fulfil that destiny. As luck would have it, her cousin was a valet to the Dauphin, for once her bourgeois background paid off to give her an in to the royal court. She also made her own luck. Her estate, the Chateau d'Etoile, was close to one of the king's favourite hunting spots. So she sought to engineer a sort of meat-cute, or series of meat-cutes. She taught herself how to drive a phaeton, a small speedy carriage, and contrived to run into the kings on numerous occasions to charm him. And, like so many a fairy tale romance, the deal would be sealed at a ball. The king's son, the Dauphin, you'll never guess it, his name is Louis, was engaged to be married to the Infanta Maria Theresa. Wait a second. Infanta? Yep, she was the sister of Anna Maria Victoria, the girl that the king had jilted because she was too young to sleep with him. Like I said, Louis XV was a classy guy. A whole month of balls was planned to celebrate the Dauphin's nuptials with the sister of his father's cast-off, with the centrepiece being the splendidly named Ball of the Clipped Yew Trees. This was a masked ball held in the Hall of Mirrors at the Palace of Versailles, and it seemed that half of French polite society showed up in all their finery, with the other half bribing attendants to let them in anyway. Everyone was there, except, seemingly, the king. Suddenly, the door to his antechamber opened, and in walked eight figures, all dressed, bizarrely, as yew trees, clipped like those in the Parisian gardens in the shape of pillars, each with a vase on top. Now, some of the sources I have read suggested that those in attendance didn't know that one of these people dressed as yew trees was, in fact, the King of France, though I personally find that very hard to believe. This is exactly the sort of jape Louis was fond of, and I think it's far more likely that everyone would have known one of the trees was Louis, just not which. 
The king mingled among the crowd until his eyes fixed on a transfixing sight. A beautiful blonde woman, dressed as Artemis, fittingly given her mission at the ball, the goddess of the hunt. Unlike the other attendants of the ball, she was unmasked. Her face was her golden ticket to achieving her glory, but she wasn't about to cover it up. According to the writer, Don Gaville, quote, The king lingered before each subject of which it was composed without fixing his choice, when a young blonde, slender and beautifully formed, arrested his attention. She was dressed as a huntress, with a bow and quiver on her shoulders. Her flowing curls were spangled with jewels, and her half-bared bosom excited his desire. Fair huntress, said his majesty, happy are those who are pierced by your darts. Their wounds are mortal. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 